Well, amen. It's a great song. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. There is a handout if you'd like one of those as well. Um, so uh, you can follow along in that way. There is actually, uh, if you've got that bulletin insert, later on in the sermon, uh, there is a, an excerpt that I'll be reading from, from C.S. Lewis, and so that can be uh, helpful to you. Well, it's been one of those mornings for me this morning. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you ever wonder what a pastor likes to do on a, scene, or on a Sunday morning before he comes to church, but uh, my, my habit so far in the full two months that I've been here uh, has, to been, has been to come uh, to the church uh, about 5.30, 5.45 in the morning with a nice cup of coffee and just kind of slowly allow myself to wake up and get ready uh, for the day. And so I, I did that today. I was here about 5.45, I think, in the morning and had my coffee, spread out Bible. I mean, it's like a sweet moment before the Lord, you know, praying and, and working through some things. And, and so I was working on a sermon. I had my, my laptop right here. And as I was preparing, or it was, I was doing something, I, I pushed my laptop out of my way because I wanted to see my Bible and my notes a bit. When I did that, I didn't realize my full cup of coffee was right behind the laptop, and it spilled, like, all over my office. <laughs> so, so, you know, I do what any person at 5.45 in the morning might do. I, I kind of panic, and so I, I get up, and I, I run right out of my office into the hallway here to get some uh, paper towels and stuff like that. And, and then that's, that's when it hit me that I locked myself out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> So there's coffee like pouring down onto the carpet. My, oh, I just feel so bad. And so I end up calling my wife. She is such a delightful, delightful woman. And at 5.45 a.m., 5.45 a.m., she, she came over and helped me get into my office. So it has been one of those mornings, uh, but we are rejoicing in the text that God has called us to look at this morning. And the good news is I really didn't get any of it on me. So it could, it could have been worse. Well, I've been starting through a series in Philippians, and and as we have gone through uh, this book, we have taken the time to to see that the theme of the book is our mindset or the way that we think as believers. Last week, we started into uh, our study of a need for a unified mindset. I told you when when you think of chapter 2, I want you to think of unity, Unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in particular with the way that we think. So that Paul says in Philippians 2, that he wants them to have the same mind. And then in the same verse, Philippians 2, 2, he wants them to be of one mind. And that really the rest of the chapter is Paul kind of describing two key characteristics of New Testament believers. Characteristics we must have, character traits that we must have if our church is going to be unified. And last week, I began emphasizing the need for personal humility in our lives as a foundation for corporate unity. In verses 1 through 4, I think he lays out that imperative. He describes it for us, and then what happens in verses 5 through 11, he gives us a prime example of having a humble mindset in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I remember reading recently about one man's good fortune. Uh, He was building a house in Egypt, and he began searching through the sandy soil in Egypt, where he was located, to try to find a place that he could build his house. He looked for some sort of foundation. 
that's when eventually he came to what he thought was a rock, and so he anchored a portion of his house to this rock. But what he didn't realize was that uh, this actually wasn't a rock at all, but that he had built his home on one of the columns of the ancient temple of Luxor, erected by Amon Hafiz III. A short while after he, he built his home, the, winds, the wind patterns changed, began to blow the sand away from the foundation of his house, and that's when he realized that his foundation was more impressive than he originally thought. Excavators came in and they unearthed the fact that this man's house was actually sitting on a column that stood over 80 feet tall. you imagine that? This man's foundation was far more impressive than he originally, than it originally looked. You know, I think that that story forms a parallel for many of us who build our lives on Christ. Perhaps there are many of you in the room or uh, listening this morning who uh, came to Christ uh, at a very early age. I personally was saved when I was six years of age. And when I look back on my own salvation testimony, I realized very important things about Jesus and about myself. When I came to Christ as a small child, I understood that I was a sinner and that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross, and that he rose again for my sins, according to the scriptures. But for me, what has happened since that day, since my day of salvation, when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, uh, my understanding of who Jesus is and what he accomplished has only grown and increased. It's like I'm scratching around on the foundation, and occasionally I step away as someone now who's been saved for 35 years. I just say, man, this is marvelous what God did through the person and work of his son. The more you understand, for instance, your own sinfulness, the more you begin to realize everything that Jesus overcame to present you perfect and holy before the Lord God. This morning, we're going to look at Christ again. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, Paul summarizes the entire career of Christ in five verbs. Uh, The five verbs are bolded in your handout, in case you're interested. And these five verbs can be organized under two points, the descent of Jesus and the exaltation of Christ. And so we'll first look at verses 6 through 8. Look in your Bible at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here in the first half of this passage, Paul draws our attention to the humility of Christ by showing us what Christ chose to do with his divine status as the pre-incarnate Son of God. The way I'd like to look at verses 6 through 8 with you is I'd like to... Um, look at them through the lens of one's status or rank. Uh, This is actually a very interesting study that many New Testament scholars today are really probing in detail regarding the city of Philippi. 
the city of Philippi made much out of one status. The city of 15,000 people in Philippi were made up primarily of lower classes of slaves and former prisoners. And only a few of these slaves and prisoners would ever be able to achieve to the status of the aristocrats or the rulers who had money to buy power in Philippi. And none of these slaves would ever be able to achieve to the place where they would have the same status as the Roman emperor, who would be clothed in royal garments of majesty and sovereignty. And so one status was important in the ancient city of Philippi. So I want to look at this text and describe it regarding Christ's status. In verse 6, I would first describe his status as this. It was he has divine status. It says, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Two key phrases here in verse 6 reveal Christ's divine status. The phrase, in the form of God and equality with God. The form of God refers to Jesus' outward form which reflects his true nature as God. He was in form God. The phrase equality with God declares the heights of Christ's pre-incarnate status. He was completely equal to God the Father in every way. He had equality with God. And these two phrases, form of God, equality with God, collectively... uh, give a picture of Christ clothed in garments of divine majesty and splendor. Lofty status. The Son of God in the form of God and equal with God. Now, citizens in status-conscious Philippi would appreciate such lofty heights, but I would suggest they would be shocked by by what Jesus does with it. Because if you look closely at verse 6, at the first verb, you learn that he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. You see, Jesus refused to make a selfish choice in respect to his deity. He is God, but he did not selfishly clutch onto it. Christ's first step of descent was his decision to be selfless in regards to his deity. Divine status. This leads to what I'll describe as uh, a step of descent to his slave status. So he's God, but he empties himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The translation here for emptied himself is, I feel, uh, a little bit misleading of a translation. Because Jesus never emptied himself of anything. No aspect of his deity. He never cast off divine attributes or the independent use of his divine attributes. But what the text, I believe, begins to show us in verse 7 is... Uh, basically that his, his 
uh, emptying, his limiting of himself actually came by taking on something. Christ emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. See, I think that we can begin to understand what it means when it says he emptied himself by looking at the next two phrases. The next two phrases give us the means by which he emptied himself or he limited himself by taking on the form of a servant and by being born in the likeness of men. In other words, Christ's emptying was accomplished not by subtracting anything, but by adding to his deity. He added servant form and human likeness to his divine status. This is the nature of the emptying of Jesus. And perhaps to some people, this adding would veil or mask his deity, but he always remained fully God. Perhaps the analogy illustration of a king might help us for a moment. You know, when you start using illustrations to describe the deity and humanity of Jesus, you better be careful. I use the analogy of a king robed in royal garments. Imagine this king walking through his land, stopping to help a dying person. Stopping to to help a dying person. The king does not take off his royal garments. Neither does he change his identity. He is the king, but he puts on, in this illustration, he puts on common work clothes to go down into a pit to save a dying person. If this illustration is going to hold true in putting on those work clothes, he must also assume the full form of a slave or of a prisoner. And when wearing these clothes, other people might not recognize his sovereign authority. Okay, so to be clear, I think Philippians 2 is telling us Jesus never gave up his deity, but he limited himself by taking on the form of a slave and by becoming a man. And imagine how difficult that must have been for Jesus. The perfect Son of God coming to live in the midst of wicked men and women. Imagine how comfortable you would be spending a night on death row with serial killers, rapists, Dirty, vile, and wicked men. How comfortable would you be there? Now imagine how the perfect Son of God felt when he descended to earth in the form of a man to dwell amongst sin-filled humanity. So I'm describing Jesus the way I describe it is this in this text. He has divine status. But then he, he limited himself and he, he came to slave status. But the text doesn't stop there, and we have verse 8. The next step of descent that Jesus took was, uh, I would describe this way, he then achieved no status. No status. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ goes from slave status to no status. The text says here, and the verb that's used is he humbled himself further. You'd think that'd be enough for the Son of God to become a slave, to become a human. That'd be sacrifice enough. But Jesus Christ keeps taking steps of descent. And he stoops 
even lower, to, to where he's obedient to the point of death. And even the way that Paul writes this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, you see that he's emphasizing this death. He says death twice. To describe to us, I believe that this death was not any sort of ordinary or normal death. It was excruciating and it brought extreme consequences. I want to think about the consequences of the death of Jesus for just a moment. I think this will be helpful for us. It brought, of course, with it physical consequences. Dying on a cross, was it a severe way to die? It was excruciating. One of my favorite descriptions of the death Death by crucifixion was written by an author about a hundred years ago. If you could pardon some of the old English language here, I think that his, de- his description of death by crucifixion is really telling. He said this, he said, A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have. Of the horrible, ghastly, dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, and mortification of intended wounds. He continues, he said, all of this intensifies just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. He closes, the unnatural position of crucifixion made every movement painful. The lacerated veins, the crushed tendons would throb with incessant anguish. It was an excruciating form of death. I don't know that any of us would deny that. Who would want to die by being hung on a tree, pounded nails through your wrists and your feet? Who would want to die in that way? For great physical consequences, but perhaps even more severe for Jesus are the spiritual consequences that he faced in the cross. In dying on the cross, Christ bore the unrelenting wrath of God upon the sins of the world. Jesus suffered and he died, but he did so separated from God the Father, paying the penalty for our sins. So as we contemplate the person and work of Jesus Christ and the fact that he died on the cross, we need, to, we need to see that it brought great physical consequences and spiritual consequences. But I want to emphasize a, a third type of consequence I think that Philippians really emphasizes most here, and that is the social consequences. But the cross also brought another form of punishment which this text emphasizes. Death by crucifixion was humbling. It was humbling. As New Testament believers, I think we often glamorize and sentimentalize the cross of Jesus Christ. And perhaps, in some ways, rightly so. So we put steeples on buildings. At the top of those steeples, we put a cross. We we hang them in front of our buildings in the center of our worship. We, We even, in some cases, hang them on walls in the entrances to our houses. I remember when I traveled uh, for a summer working out of Bible college in, in, I think, between my junior and senior year, uh, between 
uh, college years, I, I traveled with a moving company called Allied Van Lines. My dad got me that job. And I remember going into certain people's homes, and as I was going to their homes, uh, it, was, it was not unusual to see a cross hanging in someone's home somewhere. A lot of times near the front of the house, sometimes right as soon as you walk in the door. And it was a good opportunity for me occasionally just to ask the person, I see you got a cross here. What does that mean for you? Okay. But if you, if you listen to the response of people, sometimes even unsaved or lost people, they'll say something like, well, you know, it's just like this good religious symbol. It's like an omen, a good omen for our house of comfort and God's blessing. I want to invert that. I want to, imagine me taking a, someone from the first century into that house. And they walk in the door and they see a cross. What do you think they're thinking? What is this place? Is this like an execution house? Or what? Driving down the road, put them in the seat next to you in the car, and they're looking at all the church, but with all the crosses. What in the world? We need to understand the stigma of the cross in the first century. This is how criminals were killed, folks. To get a better picture of the stigma of the cross, imagine wearing an an earring, uh, and and your earring would be a little gold electric chair. Okay, so someone comes to you and says, well, what is that in your ear? Well, you know, it's an electric chair. Why are you wearing that? Well, I just like it. You know, it's how criminals are killed. And it's a good omen of God's blessing and comfort for me. Or imagine wearing a silver necklace. On the silver necklace, you've got a little guillotine. A little replica guillotine. So someone gets up the courage to come to you. What is that contraption hanging from your neck? It's a guillotine. It works. Here, get, give me your pencil. We'll stick it in there. Hit the thing. They would think you're absolutely in, insane. Death by crucifixion was loathsomely degrading. It brought significant social degradation. Only slaves and criminals could be punished in this shameful way. Yet Christ... The Son of God went from divine status to slave status to no status through the cross of Jesus Christ. And Christ's steps of descent here take us down, down, down into the deepest, darkest hole in human history to see things like horrific torture, unspeakable abuse, and the bloody execution of a slave on a cross. It is obvious, men and women, Christ stooped down to serve humanity. That's the descent. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never believed that message. You have never placed faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Christ came and he lived in this world perfectly And he died on the cross that I've just been describing, separated from God, so that he might bear the cost or the price of your sin. And what is necessary for 
for people, for lost humanity to go to heaven is that they would turn from their sins and believe on the completed work of Jesus Christ. For Jesus not only died on a cross, he rose again from the dead so that your sins would be covered by God. If you're here today and you have never asked Jesus to save you, if you've never placed faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, I would implore you, before you leave here, repent of your sins and turn to Jesus. The descent. But that leads us into the exaltation. Verses 9 through 11. Let's look at these verses together. It says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here a double conjunction actually starts verse 11. It's translated in the ESV by by one word, therefore. But this is a major separation in the passage. Verses 6 through 8, Christ descends. Verses 9 through 11, God the Father acts. Christ is the subject of the first three verbs of our text, but God the Father is the subject of the two main verbs of this section, and they are highly exalted and bestowed. The verb exalted means to lift high. So what happens is God the Father is responding to the selfless sacrifice of Christ that led him to die on a cross. And God chooses to lift high his son in response to his crucifixion. And so then the rest of this text begins to answer questions about how God exalted Christ. And so in your notes, these go very quickly and simply. The first question he answers is how. How did God highly exalt Jesus Christ? And in verse 9, then, we see the means of Christ's exaltation. God highly exalted Christ by bestowing on him a name. That's how he did it. At least in this text. Now, if I were to bestow on someone a name in our culture today, Often, we would think of what time in their life. Normally, I think we would think of when someone is born. That's when we bestow on a person a name. Or maybe some special celebration. We give a special title or uh, another name to a person. But first, to understand this text and what God the Father does here, I think it's good to ask a question, and you might write it down in your notes. When did God bestow the name above every name on Jesus? And if I'm answering that question, I would say the the time when God decides or bestows on Jesus this name above every name was at the heavenly exaltation and enthronement of Jesus. After his death and resurrection and, and also ascension to heaven. I think we know this for a few reasons, and you might jot down some of these reasons. Um, I, I believe that that is the true case because the word, the word for highly exalted is often used of Jesus' heavenly exaltation in the Gospels. 
Okay, so this is a word that is often used of the time when Jesus goes up into heaven and he ascends on the throne next to the Father. So when does God give him this name? I think it is at his heavenly exaltation. There, I think it also, another reason I would do this is because it, it follows the natural flow of the passage. Up to this point, what do we have Jesus doing? He's divine status, but then he, he's slave status, and then he's no status. He dies on a cross, and in response to those human activities of Jesus on this planet, God acts. And so I'd say it makes a lot of sense to me that God responds to what Jesus does chronologically after that. But then there's another reason as well. There's a parallel passage in Ephesians 1. Why don't you turn there for a second? Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21. And if you remember when these two epistles are written, they're both written while Paul is in prison in his own home in Rome. So he's writing Ephesians and Philippians around the same time. In Ephesians 1, in verse 20, he says uh, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So follow, follow what's going on. He's raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And notice this last description. And above every name that is named. Now go back in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, in verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In Ephesians 1 and Philippians 2, you have the name above every name. In Ephesians 1, it seems to be that after Jesus is resurrected and he goes to heaven and he's enthroned by God, that's when there is this name mentioned that he's got this name above every name. And so if I were answering the question, Pastor Brent, when do you think God bestowed on Jesus the name above every name? I think it's at his heavenly enthronement. After he's defeated death and sin. After he's resurrected and been ascended to heaven. But that leads us to another important question. Perhaps you've been thinking this one all along the way. I like to ask questions of the text. The next question I think we should be asking is, well, what is the name above every name? That Jesus gets, that God chooses after Jesus' death and resurrection to give to him. And there are a few possibilities here. Some people think that the name is Jesus. I personally don't, I won't get into that very far, but I don't know that, in my opinion, that's the best view. Jesus seems to be Jesus' earthly name. He would have gotten that at his birth or at the beginning of the incarnation. And so for God to, after it's all done, give him the name Jesus really, to me personally, doesn't make a lot of sense. But Uh, There are some other good ideas here. Others suggest that God gave Christ a name that is not identified in this passage or perhaps anywhere in the Bible. And they'll use a parallel passage in this discussion. Go over to Revelation 19 and verse 11 for a moment. We're jumping around a bit in our text of Scripture this morning to try to figure out what is the name God gave Jesus. And some people will use this text or text like it to say that the name is a name that no one in humanity knows. Near the end of time, when Jesus comes back riding on a white horse, I believe at the end of the tribulation period, to thoroughly defeat the enemies of Israel, before he sets up his millennial kingdom, 
John, the revelator, describes the appearance of Jesus here. Look at Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. I take this to be Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Okay, so some people say, well, this might be parallel to Revelation 19 and verses 11 and 12. So the name that God gives to Jesus is a name that is written that no one knows but himself. That could be. Or, go back to Philippians 2. I think the best idea here is the name that God the Father gives to Jesus Christ in response to his descent and his humbling is the name or title Lord. I think that's how this text naturally reads. So it's either the title Lord or the name Lord Jesus Christ. The name above every name is the Lord. And that is because the title Lord implies leadership and ruling over all the other people. But this word curiosity means Lord, ruler over. He's the name above every other name. Word Lord reveals Christ's identity. It reveals his destiny. But most importantly, and for this sake, his sovereignty over the entire universe. And so the name that God responds to Jesus' descent and giving to him at his heavenly exaltation, I believe, is that he is the Lord over it all. And humanity is not able or willing to recognize this until the very end. But Christ did overcome sin and death. He is the Lord. That's how God exalts Jesus, by giving him the name Lord. But there is one other question that this text answers for us in Philippians, and that is why? Why did God the Father give Jesus the name Lord at his exaltation? And I see two purposes in verses 10 and 11. They're marked out in verse 10. The first one is marked out by the word, so that. And uh, the words I would use to describe this in verse 10, I, I would say to, to establish universal worship. Verse 10 says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The first purpose I call the universal worship of the Son. God gave Jesus the name Lord, so that every knee would bow. And he explains this further at the end of verse 10 when he describes and and says this relates to those who are in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth. In other words, there's no rank of creature that is beyond Christ's heavenly jurisdiction. This includes angels, includes humans, includes demons, and the dead. All of it is under the Lord. When I think of all of creation creation worshiping Jesus, I always love and always think of Psalm 148. This will be the last passage I have you turn to, but in your Old Testament Bible, I want you to just turn back to this passage. And I want you to, as I'm reading through this, imagine the day when all of the created order gives worship to the Lord. Here's Psalm 48 and verse 1. 
And of course, I, I, the way this text unfolds is verses 1 and 1 through 6 are a description of worship from the heavens, or the celestial heavens, but then verses 7 through the end are worship from the earth, and earthly beings. Look at Psalm 48 and verse 1. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Verse 4. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Then He turns to the earth. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and rulers of the earth, Young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. For His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. Can you imagine with me for a moment that day when every being that has a knee And some things that don't. Bow in reverence to the one who has a name above every other name. Be a glorious moment. God gives this name to Jesus to establish the universal worship of creation. The Father exalts Jesus so that all might worship him. Then going back to our text and related to it in verse 11, the second purpose is what I would call universal recognition. Universal recognition. Paul continues and in verse 11, and he says, uh, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in verse 11, we learn that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I think this verse speaks of, of acknowledgement that recognizes Jesus' right to rule over us. And here in this text, the the universal, public acclamation of Christ's exalted status forms the crescendo of this passage, the crescendo of, even say, of creation history. It's all leading to this. And all of this will bring about the glory, honor, or dignity for God the Father. Christ's humble mindset was to come and die so that mankind or for mankind, so that the Father would be glorified. This is the final result of Christ's humble selflessness. And so this morning we have unfolded one of the fullest paragraphs in the New Testament on the work of Christ. The entire entire career of Christ in five verbs. But how should we respond? And in a form of application to us, I would, I would encourage us all, exhort us all to respond in two ways. At least two ways. I mean, if you've got others, then the Holy Spirit has reminded you of this morning. But first way we should respond to the selfless descent of Jesus Christ would be to worship. 
would be to worship him. One day, all creation will worship him and confess that he is Lord. We should gladly, joyfully worship him now. On the very back of your handout, I have the words of C.S. Lewis as he meditates a text like this one on the work of Jesus Christ. And I want to read this to you. And see if you can't help but worship when you read the, the words of Lewis. He said this, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, but he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. Lewis says one has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also almost disappear underneath the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Isn't a good picture of the work of Christ? Or he continues, or one may think of a diver glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing, increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light down below where it lay colorless in the dark. He lost his color too. I mean, how can we not sing in praise to the one who gave it all for us? Too many churches across America are filled with people who kind of nonchalantly hem and haw their way through the worship service. I mean, and, and in some cases, they barely even give an audible hum in praise and worship to the Lord. But we come to texts like this one. I ask, how can you not sing with a loud voice? It doesn't even have to be good. <laughs> sing with a loud voice. How can you not with zeal and passion proclaim the glory of the one who stooped down? down to serve you and he kept stepping down from divine status to slave status to no status through the cross for you we should worship the second way i'd encourage you to respond though is we should also imitate imitate him this passage has given, it's been an illustration of a principle that Jesus established back in the Gospels. Jesus said in Matthew 23, he said this, he said, whoever humbles himself, finish it, shall be exalted. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Today we have observed God's hearty approval of Christ, selfless activity and we are called to imitate his character you say well where do you see that in the text well philippians 2 5 i just never mentioned it so far there is one imperative or command to us look at it in verse 5 uh, paul is saying have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus 
So I ask you, how should we respond to the selfless descent of Jesus, to his just continually stepping down and stooping to serve other people? And I would say, from the text of Scripture, we must respond by imitating him in the way we live our lives. The preacher by the name of David Platt, David Platt compares our call at salvation to signing our signature on a blank piece of paper at the very bottom. So that's what you do when you get saved. Sign your name at the bottom. And you let God do whatever he wants with that blank sheet with your life. So, for, so perhaps for, for some of us, that means that we serve other members in this church. We stoop to serve. Even if we're wronged by them. Instead of striking back one who's criticizing you or berating you, lovingly serve him or her, even if they throw it back in your face. I think Jesus knew something about having things thrown in his face. Imitate Jesus. Selflessly serve other people in this church. Humbly. Gratefully. Perhaps that means you serve someone at work who has it out for you. Instead of giving them the treatment that they deserve. Perhaps as a follower of Christ, you could use your rank or status in the company to help them this week. Perhaps that means for some within this room, that blank piece of paper means a call to serve on another continent. Dark place. Lonely place. Where they need others. Men and women... We must be willing to do whatever God wants us to do. To stoop low. To descend lower. To serve other people. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for the work of Jesus Christ. He covers it all. Covers all of our sin. We're grateful for his descent these steps that your son chose to make to secure salvation for those who would have faith in him alone. We're rejoicing this morning in your exaltation of him. That you decided to bestow on him a name that's above every name. The name of Jesus every tongue will confess Every knee will bow. Those tongues confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And Lord, as we contemplate our part in hearing this sermon, I would pray that we would be willing to worship Christ with zeal. What he's done for us. Even as we sing this final song. May we look with eager anticipation to open our mouths and praise the one who died for our sins. Father, as well, may we imitate him this week as we serve other people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.